good morning. It is an absolute delight to be here with you. Um, so if I, I'm the National Director of Youth for Christ, and I just w- would love to know if you've actually even heard of Youth for Christ. If you have, just, just raise your hand for me. Okay, so that's good. That is good. Um, I'm actually all right if you haven't, because we are just so committed to reaching young people who are on the edges of society, who are struggling, who are disengaged with church. And that is our heart and our mission and our passion, as well as supporting and resourcing the church. It's the two. Um, man, what an effect I'm having. Uh, <laughs> So uh, let me ask you another question. I'm going to put on a video, uh, if, if, but, but my question this time is, if, if you came uh, to faith under the age of 25, if you would just again raise your hand for me. Great, okay. So, and then those of you who came to faith, uh, sorry, I should have said keep your hand up, uh, under the age of 18 or under, if you could put your hands back up. Yeah, great. So according to the EA, 85% of people who make a decision to follow Jesus do so under the age of 25. The vast majority under the age of 18. The majority of those within the absolute teenage years. So uh, uh, the position and the decision for faith is in teenage years predominantly throughout this nation, which is of interest. I'd love to show you a video, and then I'll come straight back up, and then I'll just be two minutes, and I'll get down again, and we'll get on with the rest of the service. And then when I get up and share again, it won't be about you for Christ. It'll be about something that's really very much on my heart. So if we could just show the transformation video, that would be great. Thank you. million through our resources. That's roughly 14% of the population of young people in this country. At that point, you're at the tipping point of making a change. We believe that the gospel changes lives. We believe that the gospel can enter into the most broken and darkest situation and bring light, truth, hope, restoration and transformation and we are committed to that end. One real quick story, a guy called Mick who was in prison uh, and a a chaplain worker met with him on a weekly basis, came to a place of making a decision to follow Jesus. He was so excited about his faith that he went from cell to cell to cell in this prison telling all his inmates about Jesus. They renamed him from Mick to Jesus and he was now known as Jesus throughout the prison because that's all he did. He was so passionate in love with Jesus. When he was released least. The parole officer helped him to try and find a job. A job is key to sustainability outside of prison. If you don't get a job, you'll end up back in prison usually. They offer him a job and he says, I can't take the job. And the parole officer says, why can't you take that job? He says, because it requires me to work on a Sunday. I'm going to go to church on a Sunday. He turned it down. The parole officer said, you'll be back in the nick in no time. He said, I don't care. I'm not going to take a job because I'm going to go to church. He stuck to that, went to church every Sunday, got baptized, has got a job and is going on in his faith in an incredible way. That is one of countless stories. And for just £5 a month, you could help us reach more young people. And all you need to do is fill out one of these forms. I've got a box over there. Give a box to a young person so their lives can actually be encountering Jesus and change because of the content within it and who Jesus is. Come and see me afterwards. I'd love you to take one. I'd love you to be partnering with us on our journey to reach more young people. Let's reach more than 250,000 people. You can help us do that. Well, good morning. It is an absolute delight. Thank you again uh, for allowing me to come and to be part of today with you. I'm really enjoying it. Uh, And so thank you uh, for for having me. Um, In my role, I I sit on a number of committees, and one of them was with a a group of, of national youth agencies and denominational leaders. So the head of the Anglican Church for Youth was there, the Pentecostal, AOG, Elim, etc. They're all in this room. And there was a big discussion around youth ministry. Uh, uh, that was the nature of the conversation. 
But, but, but in that discussion, it became apparent real quick that actually it's one thing for someone to make a decision of faith in their teenage years. It's a totally different thing for them to go on in their discipleship journey with Jesus. And I've been overseas for 18 years. I came back about four years ago, just over. And my observation was this, that this nation... Is, has a discipleship crisis when it comes to young people. We give them tiny little bits of nuggets and hope that somehow that will fix them and that will help them in their growth with Jesus. So part of the transformation box we put together is to help young people in their growth and their discovery of who Jesus is. But actually it set me thinking around the whole area of what does it mean to effectively see young people become disciples and followers of Jesus. And so I wrote a book which is for young people and I'm going to give you the adult version of it today, adult being appropriate, uh, but, but the adult version of that book, because I think there's something for all of us in this. It doesn't matter where we are in our journey with Jesus, we're all on a journey with him. And sometimes we move backwards, sometimes forward, but we are hopefully moving. At the end of the street where I grew up as a child, I wonder if you can just click on the next one for me, um, uh, was this old derelict house, and my mum hated it. She said, it's such an eyesore, it's horrible, it needs to be demolished. And my brother said, well, the owner, he, I was about 9, 10, he was about 12, he said, the owner had been killed in his bed, and his spirit roams around the house. So as a 9, 10-year-old, there was only one thing to do, which was to break into that derelict house. And so me and my brother, we went and we pulled the boards off and we climbed inside and it was dirty and dusty and dark and the floorboards were broken and we walked up the steps and there were missing steps and we got into the it's a single bedroom house. We got into the only bedroom where he must have been killed. And so I'm in there and my brother says, shouts out, he says, come out, come out wherever you are. And my little 10-year-old heart is about to stop. It's going so fast. I'm terrified. And then there is this horrific scream. And it was piercing. And my brother said, run. I needed no encouragement. I was already running down the stairs. I was down those stairs, across the floorboards, jumping through the window. I fall as I jump through the window. I'm picking myself up. As I pick myself up, my brother is on the climbing through and he's laughing. And I say, what are you laughing for? He said, well, you should have seen your face when I made that noise. And I realized it was my brother, not a dead spirit or anything of that nature. And I thought, what an idiot of a brother I have. My parents felt very similar to the owners of that house, which was derelict. They just thought it was disgusting. But somebody saw its potential and they bought it and they invested in it, and they renovated, and they transformed it into a beautifully spectacular house. It's now the best house on the street. But at one point, it was in a diabolical state. And if I were to ask you a question, my question would be this. What is the state of your metaphorical house? If your life were to represent a house, what is the condition of it? You might say, well, it's beautiful on the inside, but the outside not so much. Or you might say, it's great on the outside, but on the inside there's problems. You might say the floorboard's broken. You might say that the boiler's on the blink and you're not as warm as you should be. You might say the lights don't work. I don't know what you would say. But here's the thing. We believe, don't we, that we are not here by chance. We believe that we are created by a God who loves and knows us whether you believe you were created in seven days or creation was seven days or seven trillion years, it's really irrelevant. What's relevant is that you were created by a God who knows and loves you and sees your potential. If you just flip two over for me, uh, in Genesis 1.26, it says that we are made in the image of God. 
And that word image is kind of confusing for us because we have physical form. We are all here physically, but, but, but God is spirit. Therefore, how can we be made in the image of something that doesn't have physical form? How does that work? Well, the Greek, sorry, the Hebrew word when translated into English actually isn't so much image. The best description is the word shadow. And we have the shadow of God upon us. We have his print, his, his, his fingerprint pressed upon us. We hold his characteristics. And so here's the thing. It doesn't matter what the state of your metaphorical house may be. It doesn't matter if there's a hole in the roof, if the window's shattered, if the door's hanging off, if there's a crack that goes all the way up the side of the house. Because to God, you have immense potential because you have his shadow upon you and you are made in his image and you are loved by him. You have immense worth and value. For me, if you just flip one over again, for me, when I was growing up, 16 years of age, I came from an unchurched home. Nobody went to church. We didn't, the only ever time any reference to anything spiritual was in a swear term. Um, and so there was no positive influence around faith. And it was a, a hurting home, and um, it was somewhat dysfunctional, and I was a hurting teenager, and I was pretty angry. And on New Year's Eve, at the age of 16, there's a knock at the door, and it's the local authorities, and they come on in the house. My dad summons me, and they said, they're here for you. And they say, you are a danger, and we're taking you away. And so I was taken away on New Year's Eve. I was put in a, a place with bars on the window where I had no freedom. And eventually they let me out. And as I was leaving, after months of being there, as I was leaving, they said, the thing is, you'll be back here again. People like you are always back. And they were words of hope spoken over me. And I left hurting and broken and angry that I'd been locked up. And I went home. And I'd lost all my friends. Nobody wanted to know me. No one cared about me. Uh, and I just was angry even all the more. But there was one weird teenage guy who was from my school. He was so strange. He was so weird. I'd lost all my friends. But this guy, he wanted to know me. And I didn't want to know him. I had not a lot of choice. But I definitely didn't want to be his friend. And he kept coming to my house and knocking on the door. And my mom would say, hey, he's downstairs. He wants to see you. And I would say, no, I don't want to see him. And uh, mum eventually got so frustrated, she said, listen, I'm letting him in because I'm fed up with this. He's in the house. So I went down, I saw him, and he said, look, I know you don't want to see me. And I was like, mm hmm And he said, but here's the deal. You go out one evening with me, and I will leave you alone for the rest of your life. Now, that sounded like a really good deal. So I said yes, but I didn't read the terms and conditions of this agreement. So he turned up, I got in the car, we, I thought we were going to Mackey's McDonald's or something like that. Uh, we end up outside a church and I say, what are we doing here? And he said, no, 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 don't worry, in the hall there's a youth event, it's probably about 200 young people, it's going to be a band, it's going to be cool, don't worry. So I'm like, okay, fine. So I go into the hall and there is about 200, 300 young people, there is a band, but I go on to heightened alert because I recognize two adults now, these guys had been into my school, and I was pretty convinced they were from a cult, and they were from something called Youth for Christ. Now, ironically, I now lead Youth for Christ, but at that point, I thought this was a cult meeting, and I'm like, I don't want to be in here. He said, it'll be all right, don't worry. And so the band struck up, and they were singing really weird things 
about blood and redeeming sacrifices. And I couldn't understand why people were singing about this stuff at all. And then a preacher got up and spoke things again I didn't understand. And finished with that one line, if there's anyone here tonight who doesn't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, then they can do so. And I thought, who teaches people to talk like that? That is such a weird way to talk. But there was something about what was said there that I constructed and worked out. and said, Lord, save you, give him your life. And I said, okay, God, I don't know if you exist. But if you do, you can take my life. Because if you don't, I probably will. And whoever I just communicated with not only heard it, but responded and turned up in person. And I left that place a totally different person. Why? Because Jesus said, I've come to heal the brokenhearted, to set the captives free, to release the oppressed. I've come in order that you might have life, life in all its fullness. The deal was simply this. Jesus wasn't interested as an architect to turn up and say, let's see the metaphorical state of the house. He's all about moving inside. And in Revelations 3, if you just move one more over for me, in Revelations 3.20, It says, I stand at the door and knock, and he who hears me and opens that door and welcomes me in, I will come and eat with them. And then Ephesians 3.17 says that Christ wants to make his home more and more in our lives. And throughout the epistles is this reference to Jesus wanting to make his home within us. The metaphorical example here is that Jesus lives inside of us. We don't know him from afar, he moves in. Now, that gets super interesting if that's the case. For me, at 16, I started to grow in my faith, and I grew hugely in character and spirituality and and, and all sorts of ways, but there were areas of my life where I didn't. So I was growing disproportionately, and it didn't make sense. Why wasn't I changing in all areas of my life? Why was I only changing in some areas? And here's the thing. When Jesus comes into our lives, for some of us, we say, Jesus, you know what? You need to stay in the hallway. I'm going to go to church on Sunday. I am a Christian, but that's it. I'm leaving you there. For others of us, we say, Jesus, you are welcome into the living room. You're welcome into the dining room. You're welcome into the kitchen. You're welcome into the bathroom. But there are certain areas where you are not welcome. And I don't want you moving around in those places. And I would dare to say this. It doesn't matter how long you've been a follower of Jesus. It doesn't matter how long you've been going on in your faith. It doesn't matter how old you are. That if we are to reach our full potential, then we have to give Jesus all access to every area of our lives. And I would say for some of us, that can be a struggle. And so if you go on a a couple more for me. I was rolled out at 16, 17 to give my testimony. And I had no idea about anything to do with church environments. I didn't know the difference between a Catholic church and a Pentecostal church. I had no idea about anything. And I remember going to a Pentecostal event and they said, give your testimony. So I shared a much fuller version of what I've just shared. And afterwards they said, okay, now you preach God's anointings on you. You need to pray for people. Now at this point, no one had told me what it means to pray for people. I've learned that actually it's a good idea to ask them what they want prayer for. I didn't know that. I just started praying for this woman. And I was full flow and she was totally disappointed in my prayer because it had nothing to do with her needs. But as I was praying, I had a picture. If you just move one more over for me, it was a picture of a house without any floorboards. And it was so vivid. I had no idea about pictures. 
And so afterwards, I said, look, I, I, I don't know why, but I had a picture of a house and a house without any floorboards. And she started to visibly react. And I said, are you okay? And she said, yes. But all week, I've had a dream. And it's been a dream on repeat. And it's been going over and over again. And it's a house without a floorboards, just like what you shared just then. In the Bible, there are two men, aren't there? One builds his house on a rock, the other on sand. When the storms of life comes, the house built on the rock stays standing. The one on sand, it crumbles. And I believe that when Jesus comes into our lives, one of the first things he wants to do is to rip up the floorboards and to lay a new foundation. A foundation built with a true perspective of who he is. Because when we have a true perspective of who God is, we will have a true perspective of how he sees us. And when we understand how he sees us, it will impact how we see ourselves and the world around us. And for many of us, I would dare to suggest we may not have a full true perspective of who God is or how he views us. And therefore, the way we view ourselves and we view God can be slightly off. Let me give you an example. God loves everyone, but he doesn't fully love me because he knows the stuff in my life. God will heal whoever, but he won't really heal me. I would say right there is an example of an incorrect foundation, an incorrect understanding of who God is. And I believe Jesus wants to come in and to lay a new foundation and say, build your life on truth. After he's dealt with the floorboards and looked at the cracks and dealt with the dry rot and all these kind of things, I think he wants to roam around. And at that point, it gets super uncomfortable. And I remember, again, just shortly after becoming a Christian, visiting one of my friends. At this point, I knew no Christian songs at all. I just knew half of one song, and it had Greek in it. And again, if you could just click for me one more time, thank you. Uh, it was a song called Kyrie Eleison, Lord Have Mercy. And the, 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 the chorus went like this, look around you, what can you see? And that's the only part of the song I knew. And I remember being in his bedroom singing this song to myself, Kyrie Eleison, look around you, what can you see? And I was just singing it, humming it, and he was getting really irritated. Now, partly because I can't sing. Richard was really kind, but I really can't sing. So that would have been annoying him. Uh, but it wasn't that that annoyed him. He suddenly burst out saying, okay, okay, I know you know. And I said, what is it I know? And he goes, I know you know, so don't pretend you don't know. I said, I don't know what it is you think I know, but let's pretend it is that I know. So what is it that I know? And then he pulls from under his bed this huge amount of pornographic magazines. And when I was singing the song, Look Around You, What Can You See? He was convinced that God was saying, listen, if you don't tell him, I'm going to show him. Now, I don't know if that's the case, but I do know in that moment that liberty and freedom came to my friend who had been hiding something for so long, who had been crippled and paralyzed in his walk with Jesus. And I think for many of us, we have rooms in our lives where the door is locked, where the light is turned off, where there are habits and things that we do in secret, or there's historical things that have happened, and we just don't want light in there. And if you click, oh, thank you, you're already, in Ephesians 5, 13, it says, everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. And I would dare to suggest that if you want to reach, if we want to reach our full potential, then we have to say, Jesus, turn the light on. Open the door. Reveal those things that I just don't want anyone to know. 
Help me on the journey of freedom. Come into this space. In a room this size, there is no doubt that there are people who are hiding things that just bring shame. And I am convinced, and my theology will not allow me to believe anything other than this, that Jesus is not in the business of revealing shame and embarrassment to us. He's in the business of working and journeying through things in our lives so that we can find freedom and that we can find that place of restoration and that he can renovate us and bring us to a place of total transformation. But to do that, we have to be honest about what may be going on in areas of our lives and say, Jesus, help me here. So when we bought our house, uh, after we came back living overseas, uh, I know nothing about houses at all. And I noticed there was a problem with the guttering. And I, so we got some roofers in and they came in and they looked at the house and they said, yeah, there's a problem with your guttering, so that's going to be 300 quid, something like that. I don't know. I, got, I can't remember. And I go to work and I get this frantic phone call and I ignore it because I'm in a meeting, but it's ringing over and over again. So I realize there's a problem. Someone really wants me. I pick up my phone and it's the roofers. I say, look, we're on your roof. Forget the guttering. The guttering is no longer an issue here. Your real problem is that you have holes in your roof so badly that there's actually a bush growing out of one of the holes. This is not good. You need to fix it. We can fix it for you. I'm like, oh, no. So the price went a lot more from 300 and way up, and they had to fix a hole in our reef or holes. And when the storms of life come, and they do, and the Bible tells us that they will come, and anyone who lives life knows storms come, and some of us here today uh, may, well be, may well be living with storms going on. And it's what happens in those moments and it's what we do in those moments when the storms come that is most interesting. Because my real question is this. If we have a hole in our roof, then that which is coming and the storm from the outside will penetrate onto the inside. And my question is, what do you do when the storms come? And do you have a hole? Do you have a leak? Because a leak, to start with, will just create a little bit of damage on the paintwork, a bit of a circle, but eventually it will corrode the very roof. And that's what storms can do if they're left untreated. And when chaos develops all around us, my question is, what do you do? And we see with the disciples in the boat, don't we? When a storm hits that boat, they panic, they wake up Jesus, and he deals with the storm. And I think this, I don't think there's a problem with panicking. I think panicking is totally normal. When a storm hits me, I panic. But if I stay in a place of panic, then I'm in trouble. And when storms hit our lives, if we stay in a position of panic, we, it will move and transfer to anxiety, which will then go to long-term stress, which will move into realms of depression and other areas. And that is not the best that Jesus has for us. He says, I will give you peace. And when the storms come, we need to know what it means, that peace that passes all understanding. And my question is, do you know what it's like to center on Jesus in the midst of a storm and say, Jesus, I don't know what's happening right now. I don't know how this is going to work out. I don't know where this is going to go, but I'm going to trust you. Please, can I experience your peace? How does that play out? Well, let me tell you one story, and then I'm coming to an end. I promise you I am. But this is a story that happened when I was a center director for Youth for Christ in a, a place that I won't tell you about so that you can't link it back to that place uh, because it's that kind of story. But it's many years ago, and we were asked into a school. And we were asked into this school because 
the, the teachers just couldn't teach. It was like a zoo. It was like a riot. And they just didn't want to teach. So they said, you for Christ, come in and teach RE. So we just took over the RE department. We loved it because we had a crowd, but it was a manic, crazy crowd. And this one particular day, we were teaching on faith, and we were doing the faith test. And you've all seen it, where you bring someone up, and you say, put out your hands, fall backwards, and I'll catch you. Right? And I think if you just uh, move over, you can show, show them this particular image, if it's up there for me. Great. So you just fall back. No, no, that's, there we go. Fall back, I'll catch you. So we had a young guy come out. He said, yeah, I can do this. He fell back. We caught him. And then we go to the next stage where we blindfold them and say, okay, do you trust me? If you do fall back, I'll catch you. And he did. And then we go to the next stage where we spin them around and they say, okay, do you trust me? At this point, the vast majority stopped trusting you partly because they don't know what's going on because their head's just so dizzy. And he fell back and we caught him. And then we say, we are going to the ultimate stage. This time, I'm going to stand in front of you. On the count of three, I'm going to run under your arms as you start to fall backwards and I will catch you. Now, you know immediately that's a ridiculous thing and there's no way I could do that. This guy was so keen. He had so much faith in me that he was up for it. I didn't realize he was up for it, but he was up for it. And so uh, what, what I have is a backup plan, which is a year-out volunteer with You for Christ who sat on the front row, and if, the, if he thinks the guy's getting twitchy and might do it, he's up, he's ready to catch. But because this has never happened, when this young man actually starts to fall backwards because he thinks I can do this, my catcher is looking out of the window. This young guy is now falling to the ground. I run forward and try to grab him. And as I grab him, gravity now takes over and we are both falling. This point, my catcher wakes up and he's like Superman. He's up out of his chair, but he knows he can't grab him. So he does the only thing he can think of, which wasn't a good thing. And he lifts up his knee to somehow break the young guy's fall. But what he actually does is knees him in the back of the head. And as he knees him in the back of this head, his head moves forward, and I then nut the guy because I'm falling as well. And then I fall on top of him. And the young guy, he's about 12, 13, starts crying. Now, this is not a good image or scene that you want in a classroom when you're talking about faith. But it's really hard to then go on and start saying, hey, you need to put your faith in God, when they've literally seen someone put their faith in us and we drop them. But this is the thing, isn't it? That no matter what happens in life, no matter how bad that storm is, regardless of whether you have a hole in the roof or not, regardless of whether you trust him or not, he will not drop you. He will reach there and he will grab you because he promises, Psalm 121, I will not let your foot slip. Hebrews, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He is there with us. It may not go quite the way we want it to go, but he promises that he is there in the midst of us. So why then do we stress and worry long term needlessly when he says, I've got you, whether you trust me or not? And I just want to ask about the metaphorical state of your house. As Jesus walks around, firstly, is Jesus still on the outside, knocking to come on in, waiting every moment of every day, hoping that we will say yes and open the door to him to come in and live within us. And if he is within us, what is the state of our floorboards? Are the foundations really, truly right? Or do they need relaying by him? Because as life has gone on, as difficulties have come, as things have not gone the way we hoped they would be, our perspective of who God is has changed. 
And perhaps when you say, Jesus, would you give me a fresh perspective of who you are so I can love you the way that you created me to love you? And if that's not the case, I wonder whether we have given him full access to every area of our lives, whether there are things actually that we hold in secret, there are habits we do that we just don't want anyone else to know about, but we will never reach our full potential until we say, Jesus, come into that dark room of my life and do what you need to do. And if that's not the case, then perhaps you have a hole in the roof and you carry anxiety and stress on a continual basis. And Jesus says, I've got peace for you. You need a center on me. Trust me. Know that I am with you. And he says, I've got you if you do. And if that's not the case, then I'd like to take you to Romans 12. And it's here that I finish. And I know that you'll forget everything I've said because everyone ever does. But I just hope that you will hold on to this. Romans 12 talks about the renewing of the mind. And I would say to you, if you do forget everything I say, remember this, that you are loved and you are wanted and you are valued. No matter what state of the metaphorical house of your life may be, whether the door is ripped off, the, the, the ceiling's corroded, there's a crack at the side, he looks at you and says, I love you, I value you, you matter because you're mine and you're made in my image. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you that you see our potential and you push us to know you, to grow in you, and to become the people that you've created us to be. But Lord, I pray for areas in our lives where we may hold him back. Lord, may you come and bring change, and may you bring transformation, and may we hold on to the fact that we are loved, valued, and matter no matter what happens in our lives. That will never change. But Lord, would you push us forward to a life of transformation and renovation so we can be all that you created us to be. I pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen.